Schumann, who is, I love your tagline, it's a composer, music observer, and educator. Yes. I think that properly encompasses the multiple facets that you embody. So can you tell us a little bit about where you are, what you do? Yeah, so um, I live in Michigan. I have, unlike you and many of the other guests that you have interviewed on your podcast, I have not left Michigan despite coming here for school. I... I'm a composer, and you and I met in my... I was actually in my master's, I think, when we first met. Yeah, because I was thinking a lot about that class that we took with um, Jane Fulcher. 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 Yeah, that was great. Um, mm, And uh, (laughs) we'll we'll probably get more into that later. But uh, I uh, teach at two schools here in Michigan. I I am an adjunct at Western Michigan University, which is in Kalamazoo, and also at at um, Madonna University, which is in Livonia, a little suburb of Detroit in southeast Michigan. Mm. And uh, I also compose a lot, and I run a a concert-presenting organization called uh, Apex Contemporary Performance, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, we do, you've performed with us, as you know, Um, but to explain to the listeners, um, we have been, we just started our third season, actually, and we... um, yeah, we uh, do contemporary music. Basically, our goal is to present rarely performed and underrepresented uh, composers from around the world, 21st and 20th century composers, mm-hmm. to audiences in Michigan. So we're very Michigan-centered. Right. That's been really exciting yeah. and an, an interesting part of my life in addition to creating new pieces and then teaching at, at different right. schools. So it's... When I added, when I, the the idea of the music observer thing was when I was doing a lot of writing about music. Mm -hmm. So when you and I met back in 2011, I was like blogging a lot and um, I did have a podcast. uh, Which is called? At that point, which it was called We Are Not Beethoven. Yeah. And it was just like a contemporary music podcast. Right. Um, that was a lot of fun to do, but it didn't, it didn't last I liked the title a lot. Oh, thank you. It was just like the idea that composers are living people and, um, basically like a counter to the mythical image of composers as represented by Beethoven. Right. I, I don't do as much of that anymore. I do a lot of, actually, I've done been doing a lot of research lately, music theory research on heavy metal music. <laughs> and that's that, <laughs> that's where I do most of my, my writing now. But I, I think that, like, the reason I still refer to myself as a music observer is I like to th- think a lot, like, I am very interested in, like, considering the broader role that composers can play yeah. as artists within art worlds and then also within society at large and so um i often have that like bird's eye view as to what i'm doing and what people around me are doing and and especially in running this organization like what our role on the community is and and that sort of thing so i like to think that i'm always paying attention to what's going on and, and thinking about sort of the broader context for the decisions i'm making artistically or in some other way you know, I, I was just reading... Have you heard of the book, The Medici Effect? 
No, I have not. Different disciplines intersect to create innovative, great things. And I thought of you, maybe because I knew I was coming to interview <laughs> you, but also just I thought of you because you you keep your eye and your mind open. And you just kind of soak in a lot and then you make these connections. I mean, I think of the pieces you wrote. I think of the piece you wrote me. There's connections there that are not typical. They're not expected. Well, thank you very much. The piece that you commissioned for me is absolutely one of my favorite pieces that I've written. And it um, it was so much fun to write and intersected with my life in a lot of different ways. Because as you know... At the time, I was like working a lot as a piano technician right. in my, and, and additionally in my doctorate. And so, that piece of my approach to prepared piano was really about like using that information. And piano technicians generally don't like prepared piano music. So it's like, how could how could I do this in a way that is going to maybe someday make a piano technician like appreciate the thought that I put into the piece? Yeah, I think you described it once as a piano technician having a tantrum or something. <laughs> Well, it's really about the experience of tuning a piano, and like, there's a lot of, I guess I've written, uh, there's a piece I had premiered at the beginning of November that is very similar in the way that there's a lot, a lot of, uh, conceptually similar in the way that it, like, uses an experience from my life Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of different ways to inform the form of the piece and and the uh, the material and that sort of thing. So in in escapement, like there are a lot of augmented triads because the temperament that I learned to tune a piano with is based on augmented triads. It's based on major thirds, right. and so I was like bringing that into the piece. There were a lot of quintuplets, which I know you were not happy to see because you're like, that's like my least favorite rhythm to play. But that's like hippopotamus related. Yeah, yeah, it's related to, so when you tune, what what you do when you tune a piano is you're trying to hear the rate of overtone beating between certain notes and, like, control that, and basically that's how you know it's in tune, is, like, um, you you have to listen to the overtones depending on the interval and, like, Mm -hmm. respond, make sure that there's basically the right amount of dissonance there because uh-huh. that's how equal that's how equal temperament works it's like a specific distribution of the dissonances across the piano because it can't uh-huh. adjust in performance like a string player or a vocalist might and um so the the first in the temperament that i know the first uh rate of overtone beating that you're trying to get in as you're doing the tuning is five per second and so that's why i I did the quintuplets because it like ties into that and so that piece is really about like the process my experience like it's my musical um response to tuning a piano and then so this piece i had premiered in november is about we uh, my sister-in-law had a had a child in march and so it's about our niece and like there are all these like little inside things similar to the prepared piano piece about like the sets that are based on the numbers of the time and date when she was born or or like she um one time when shana my wife and i were babysitting her Uh the only thing that would calm her down was the music of mario davidovsky and morton feldman what well feldman i can understand but everyone (laughs) says that they're like feldman i can understand but like I don't know for for whatever reason she really loved the synchronisms and she really loved um, Rothko Chapel, oh, okay. and so there's like that when I was writing this piece it was for marimba duo I was like oh I have to do something that's like kind of like modernist because it's about my niece and I want to like 
explore this experience I had this very strange experience of like listening to this music with her and calming her down with this crazy modernist music and so I was like I'm gonna write a really far out piece and it uses a lot of aleatory and that sort of things things that I don't often use but was like really in the vein of like what I had this experience with my niece about and and the piece that I wrote you is like now that I think about it one of the first it was a precursor in a way because it was really based on my lived experience and and also I knew that you were such an incredible pianist that like there there are all these really energetic gestures and runs and and that sort of thing that I knew that you would play really really well so that had something to do with it too oh I appreciated one that you'd made the piece very expressive actually because one would Mm -hmm. expect that a piece based on listening to a piano tuner would not notice immediately the inherent musicality of it but you did and I think that it's kind of indicative because I think you try a lot of different things you try a lot of new things Mm -hmm. I don't often see that actually well I guess I'm I'm I try to write pieces that are sort of like snapshots of where I am when I'm writing the piece. What's interesting is like sometimes I don't know what that is at the time. So with the prepared piano piece, I was really excited for the opportunity to like turn the experiences I'd had as a piano tuner into a piece of music. And it's interesting, like when I was talking to my colleagues who were people who had performance degrees, they they were like, how can you find anything musically inspiring about tuning a piano? (laughs) So it was strange to them that, you know, not just to you, but to them too. Like, as I said, the most recent piece that I've had premiered is about my niece. But, like, when I wrote my dissertation, which was this song cycle for mezzo-soprano and, and chamber ensemble, I didn't realize yeah. how personal it was. And it was very much about... I was having, like, a very strenuous experience with my twin brother. Oh. Like, a year after I wrote the piece, I realized that the whole piece was about that. Wow. And I just thought, like... Because 
it was sort of an accident of the text. I had commissioned a poet who was a colleague of mine at Michigan. I commissioned some poetry from her and I really connected with it. And I was just like, oh yeah, I'm really connecting with this text. This is so great. Yeah. Like this piece is coming along really easily. And then like a year later, I was like, oh my God, this is like about me dealing with the, you know, that moment when you have siblings and, and you're older and, and you realize that your relationship is really different from mm-hmm. what it had been yeah. and sort of that kind of stuff, which wasn't really on my mind but found its way into the piece. Right. And so many times, like with the piece I wrote you or or other things, I'm like a lot more cognizant of the personal connections. But with that piece, I wasn't. And when I recognize that, it's like, I guess this goes back to like the music observer idea. Like I have to always be aware of me and how I'm feeling and what's going on in my life because it's going to find its way into my music either way. And and in some, some cases, like the piece I wrote you, like could being aware of that and controlling it led to a really interesting thing. Like, I like that piece a lot, like I said, so. Yeah, and it was a spur to creative energy, wasn't it? You said you wrote Mm -hmm. it like 10 hours? Well, basically, I wrote almost all of it in two days. Wow. But I had been thinking about it a long time. So most of when I'm composing, a lot of what I'm doing is like thinking about the piece Actually, one of my undergrad teachers taught me this. Um, I learned it when I was a sophomore of, like, using visualization techniques to... um, So what I do is I imagine I'm hearing the piece played in the specific recital hall at Rice where I did my undergrad. And, like, that creates... I don't do meditation or anything, but this is kind of like meditation. So it's like I'm in the audience, but then I can also, like, play through the ideas I have and, like, simulate, obviously what it might be to hear those in reality and like really how it makes me feel and and then I can think about where the piece should go and that sort of stuff. That's fascinating. So with with that piece like I had been doing a lot of that thinking and I was doing my oral exams at the time. I was studying a lot so I couldn't really spend a lot of contact hours on the piece but I was thinking about it a lot and then when I had like a weekend to write it it just all came out. You had an extremely fertile incubation period. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that makes sense when I think about all the things you do. So time that you spend composing is probably extremely efficient. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I know this is something you talk about on the podcast, like how <laughs> creative people like use their time. And most of the time I spend composing is thinking on my own. Like right now, I'm I actually I don't tune pianos anymore but um i was doing that until last year and i'm adjuncting so much i i drive a ton i commute 500 miles a week like going across michigan and so i have a ton of time in the car which is just kind of like dead time and i i listen to podcasts and stuff but i can also use that to work out ideas in this sort of using the visualization techniques or what i'll do is like if i have an idea when i compose i i do try to perform things as much as i can really to get like sort of the feeling 
settling for it. And so if I have an idea, I'll, like, pick up my phone and, and leave myself a voice memo of yeah. me, like, singing the idea. And so I do have to, you know, when you do a lot of different things, you do have to find little moments to sneak in right. progress. Like, it's very hard for me to find a big chunk of un- uninterrupted time to work on pieces. Right. But so I just sneak moments, like, when I'm in the car or um, fortunately, like the process that I'd already been using from school, uh, just the way that I work suits like having a lot of different things because I can kind of think about a piece and make progress conceptually mm-hmm. and then do other things. And then I can spend like two hours at the piano just like working everything out and it is very efficient fortunately that's just kind of how it works out for me i'm not somebody who and and like at this point in my career i guess um (laughs) like i i can just like sit and and work by hand you know in the the way that we like to think all composers always did but you know i'm very old-fashioned i like pencil and paper right so well i do want to go back to what you were talking about with your dissertation piece Mm -hmm. I love that you didn't know what it was about until much later. Mm-hmm. It's kind of proof that music captures something that you can't really be conscious of all the time or you can't really articulate, but music kind of gets there. And I'm just curious, did it help? Like, does does writing a piece based on a personal struggle help you in a therapeutic way? Or is it just this, the fact of doing something creative about it help? Well, I, I think... I think so. I think there is a reason that my brain, my body, my creative energies like wanted to address it. The mm-hmm. the the text for the piece is about trauma and loss and like dealing with the impact of specifically like a bad romantic relationship which is right a little bit different from my experience with my twin, but there was a lot of correlation there. And so I think subconsciously I was, I was able to draw a lot of meaning out of this text because of what I was going through. I mean, I was at the time going, I was in therapy and although it wasn't like consciously related to my experience with my family, like maybe um, because I was in therapy, maybe my mind was like more open to like addressing sort of, getting dealing with something through the piece um did it help well i i really loved the piece and it was a big moment for me not just because it was like my dissertation but right. it was the start of a this long collaboration i've had with the same mezzo soprano um named mm-hmm. megan enan who is Yay. an amazing me- amazing singer and an even an even better collaborator and yeah, yeah. um she's she's great and um, I wrote with the, the the chamber ensemble was members of Latitude Forty Nine, which is a group that started at Michigan around the time mm-hmm. when you were there, and like working with them was great. So it was very meaningful, like for other opportunities I've had. But I think it I think it did help. But it's hard for me to say exactly because I didn't really realize what was what was going on until later. And so I think maybe like once I had worked through some of the stuff with my twin. Um, I was like, oh, this piece is like kind of part of that. So I think it did play a role. Um, but it's not like I wrote the piece and then I like pushed myself back from the table and I was like, oh, I'm cured. My feelings are better, you know?
recently played a few pieces that had to deal with death um, mm-hmm. in the composer's family, and sort of the piece was either the first piece that they had written in a while or their way of dealing with profound loss. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's something that helps, but mm. I mean, in a sort of therapeutic way, but I think it just helps to create, to kind of give mm-hmm. yourself an occupation in an outlet. Well, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this because actually my, my grandmother died on Saturday. Oh my God. And um, she so and I, sorry. we were, oh, Thank you. She was 98 years old, and wow. none of us were surprised, but she and I were still very, we were very, very close, and actually something that I would do, um, she was living with my parents for the last three years, and so something I would do whenever we were at home at the same time was I would play piano for her, which is like the only Aww. time I ever play piano, because I, I had to learn piano in undergrad. I'm very bad, and... I I do better than some of the theory professors I had in my undergrad, but I actually <laughs> haven't played in a very long time. But she loved the, um, do you know the Mozart E-flat piano sonata, the one that starts mm-hmm. with the slow movement? She, it's actually a very interesting piece because it's a sonata that doesn't really start with traditional sonata form. Yeah. You can tell I teach um, music theory because I think about these things. Um, it's two eighty. It's 282, um, K, K282 for the listeners at home, if that's what you want. I recommend the Ronald Brautigam recording on, oh, um, a, on a, um, a, what a, a piano forte. It's very good. But, um, so forte I would play piano, that piece for her. Okay. You know, for, oh, sorry, forte I'm piano. Kidding, well, kidding. there we go. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about, because she and I, we were very close, and I've been thinking a lot about if there's like a piece I could write. She and I shared a lot of piano music so when mm-hmm. I was an undergrad um I did a program in France and she gave me some money to get a souvenir and and so what I did is I went to this music store and I got the sheet music for this collection of piano pieces by Federico Mampo called Mus- Musica Callata yeah they're very well these pieces are are wonderful there's something I discovered a recording when I was in high school at my public library in Connecticut and um uh-huh. She was like, get something, you know, a souvenir, and, like, the music's very hard to find, but I was able to find it in France, and so those are things that I played for her, and I was, I've been thinking, like, about writing a piece, a piano piece that sort of, like, quotes and, and draws on these pieces that I would play for her and that were meaningful to the both of us. You know, Christy Custer wrote a piece, like, when her dad died, that she talks about a lot and I know that that was really good for her to do and like right. it's not the same uh, losing a parent is different than losing a grandparent but I've been thinking a lot about this like if part of my mourning process will be writing a piece I think it's right. I don't know because like it has to be what my I guess what my body wants in a way, like in terms of mm. if that's the right way to do it. But there's a lot of stuff I could draw on there. Like it was part of our relationship in a sort of un, unexpected way because she was not a musician and I am not a pianist. So. Oh, I was just going to ask if she was a pianist, if you guys shared this bond. Mm-mm. She just she, loved she, it? She just liked music and I think she enjoyed that her grandchildren, because my twin played a lot of music when we were in high school and she loved... Mm-hmm. going to our concerts and she loved watching what she would do is she would sit in the when I had to practice in college like for juries and stuff which I was oh, always right. really yes. I was so um, 
I was Don't so bad. Don't roll your eyes. I never played. <laughs> I never played through an entire piece. I was so terrible. Um, but uh, I'm really not a performer at all. It's really kind of funny that how like how terrible I am at it. But <laughs> at any rate, she would like sit and listen to me practice like in the next room and stuff. So. Oh, she's um, so nice. She would just yeah, go she, to the next room. Yeah, yeah, she would really. It's very respectful. Yeah, and she would always say, "Oh, that sounds good," and I'd be like, "Nano, like, like I messed it up." But and then and like at around the holidays, I would play like Christmas carols and stuff for her. So, um, it would be well, like, it would make a lot of sense to write a piece about it. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm not sure. But I think it would be you know with with my dissertation, like I didn't know that it was helping me get through something. I wonder if it would. Um, if I'm like going into the piece being like, this is going to help me mourn my grandmother, if like it would actually work, or if it could be hard to like try to live up to all of the m- memories I have with her and like in a piece, yeah, it, it would be difficult. But I, th- you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. That's interesting. Does being conscious of something make it better? And also, is it a compulsion? Like you say, you listen to your body if it feels right. Does it have to come out? in a natural outpouring or is it something that you intellectualize well i think i i do a lot of my pieces like i will go in with with some kind of concept or Mm um which makes me sound like a much more experimental composer than i really am but like i think a lot about like different connection points to either ideas or pieces of music or, you know, that sort of thing. But as I'm writing the piece, it's very important that I, other than the visualization technique I was describing before, probably the best thing that I learned in my studies as a composer is, like, listening to the music that you're writing, like, as the piece is going along and, like, interpreting what it's telling you about what the piece has to be. And so you can't, like, go in with... You have to be willing to abandon the plan that you have going into it. Ah. Because once you're, like, dealing with actual notes and proportions and different ideas interacting with each other, they can take on a life of their own. And you have to be willing to... Even though you're, you've created everything that you're dealing with, you have to be willing to, like, give up control to the material that you've created and kind of listen to it and and try to understand what it needs to do to be its best piece of music basically and that's really hard because if you intellectualize too much then you don't listen to what your material is telling you but then if you don't have like some sort of higher concept that you're going to then you don't stretch your material as far as it can go And so you're just, like, satisfied with, like, sort of the simplest forms of the ideas that you come up with, which can, and depending on the context, can be perfectly satisfactory. But I think, you know, if you're calling yourself a composer and you're trying to make music that demands people's attention, you should really stretch your ideas as far as they can go and do something as interesting as possible with them. And so there's this really challenging balance between concept and then really more visceral experience with the ideas yeah and and there's sort of this conversation at least for me this sort of like conversation between the feeling which is like a very kind of primal physical emotional response to the music and then Mm -hmm. like the the concept which is more of like the structure and like the bigger idea and and it's kind of bouncing back and forth is the challenge 
I mean, that's fascinating because as the creator, one would expect you to have complete control over your ideas and what happens. But you saying that what you write takes on a life of its own is very similar to the way novelists kind of describe their books. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is like, I guess, how novelists talk about their characters being people. Like they, yeah. the, the characters sort of become three-dimensional ideas. They don't come out that way from the novelists. They sort of like gain three-dimensionality. And I think that musical ideas are the same way. But, um, you know, I've learned a lot of the most important things about composing pieces from the performers I've, I've worked with, right. inclu- including you. Like, I think oh. it's very important for composers to recognize, like, the role performers have in realizing their music in as complete mm-hmm. a way as possible. And, and I love having conversations with performers where I learn things about my piece that I never thought I would think about. Like, those right. are some of the, mo- the most important conversations I've had with fellow musicians is like working through a piece and discovering that there are things going on that I'm not aware of because you know composers like to think that we know everything Uh and all this stuff but we don't know everything (laughs) oh yeah yeah. well it's not it's not like part of the entire mythos of the profession is that like (laughs) we're all we're we're just we're dropped here by god to write music but um you know getting somebody else's perspective and you know, it's so, it's so wonderful. I think you're the person who has played a piece of mine the most. Really? Because of all, all the times you played Escapement. I can't wait until the next time I get to hear you play it, because this is a piece that you know really well now. Yeah. And, like, your, your, your performance, I can only imagine, like, the things about the piece that you are bringing out and will, like, not just reveal to the audience, but to me when I get to hear it the next time you play it. Um... That's a really special thing. And yeah. um, it's it's hard, you know, when you're a composer, like, getting any performance is, or at least if you're a composer like me, like, getting any performance is a really exciting opportunity. Right. And not many composers get a ton of multiple performances, or, like, that's something that is hard to have happen. But pieces, like, change and grow over time. And so it's exciting yeah. that, like, you've... I'm, I'm really grateful that you've had such a good relationship to that piece because... I'm sure, um, I mean, it was really written for you, but it, like, is really yours now in a way, more than it even is mine, because it's, you've (laughs) interacted with it so much, so... Performers actually like playing pieces again. I mean, premieres are always rough. It's just going to be too fresh to be something that you can truly make cohesive. And so I love being able to play pieces again. And yours has the benefit of being portable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was interesting, like, when you approached me and Roger and Jeremy and David. I think those were the, we were the Mm -hmm. four that you chose. And, um... I knew that, like, in addition to the piano technician connection, like, I knew that they would do, they would probably do crazy things, because when people, like, get the opportunity to write prepared piano music, composers are generally like, 
oh, let's just go for it. Yeah. And um, and so I wanted to do something that was a little bit more subtle. And also I was like, I want this to be practicable to be performed like multiple times. And, and like when we when we were in San Francisco at the new the first new music gathering. Right. Um, you know, in like 10 years, it's going to be really cool that we were at the first new music. I gathering. know. But um, it would have been crazy if like we had to, we wouldn't have had time to set up a really crazy rig or anything yeah. like that. And of course, um, I had to persuade the piano technician at the San Francisco Conservatory to let you play the nice piano. <laughs> but it all worked out. But it's it's great. I think it's very, it's very special to me that you played that piece so many times. So I, I just look forward to the next time I get to hear you play it because I'm sure it's going to be revelatory for me. Well, I mean, I definitely so. want to program it here because one... I have the last say on what gets played on the piano. Uh-huh. It's challenging, like, with Apex. We've never done any electroacoustic pieces really? because that's just a... No, it's... I mean, we've done we've done a lot of different kinds of pieces. We've done fixed media pieces, mm-hmm. so... Um, just, like, simple playback kind of thing? Oh, yeah, just, like, we went we went to a bar and we just, like, plugged it into their sound system. Cool. Which was, which was fun yeah. and something that we should do more of. It's interesting, like... I enjoyed your conversation with Brian Shu. You talked a lot about programming. Yeah. And there, there's so many challenges with programming, and there's so many barriers to entry for new pieces, even new pieces by composers that people are familiar with. Oh because, my God, tell me about it. you know, if you're like you and Brian were talking about, you're a pianist, you like people are coming to your recital with a very specific set of expectations. Mm-hmm. And so even playing like an unknown piece or lesser known piece by like, Beethoven is risky in a way and that not to mention programming a very very cool piece but takes has a ton of setup and special yeah. equipment and it's, it's challenging um no and throughout history there have been a lot of great pieces that are not practical and and for whatever reason some are performed a lot and some aren't um like uh pieces for a really large orchestra are not practical right. but like Mahler 3 still gets performed a lot for reasons that I don't understand. Well, yeah, but. I meant to ask you about this because like there are pieces that are popular and we define a composer by, but it's like not their best work. How do these things happen? Well, I think uh, sort of the other side of the coin is like there are pieces or composers at a moment that are the most popular and then just die away. So like Hummel was the most popular composer in Europe during Beethoven's career and like nobody plays Hummel except trumpet players play the Hummel trumpet concerto. And bassoon bassoon players. Oh, is there a bassoon? It's a good, it's a good concerto, apparently. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always... So I'm going to put on my college professor hat Ooh. to answer this question. I always think about it in terms of the fact that like the history that we inherit about classical music or the common practice period is built by people. It's like people choose things to pass down to us. And mm-hmm. so um, it's it's a construction and there are flaws in that construction yeah. that we talk a lot about, like the exclusion of people of color and women. Yeah. Um, in, in, in particular, there are lots of pieces by women composers in Europe from the Baroque period through the 19th century that are not really talked about, even though they exist. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are pieces by composers of color, but because of geography and certain things, mm-hmm. the opportunities weren't exactly the same. But like I know, um, I heard about this amazing archive of Baroque music written <gasps> by 
indigenous women in Nicaragua what? at a convent that like exists in the archives in the Nicaraguan government and like oh my god <laughs> why are those pieces not performed and and there are a lot of reasons for that like maybe yeah. the manuscripts only exist in that one place but you know the history as we receive it when we are learning about the common practice period and the musical traditions and when we're in college it's like built by earlier generations and so for yeah. whatever reason like even though Ravel hated Bolero, like people like Bolero. And Radio Lab makes a whole episode about it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those weird accidents of, of history and, and you know one of Beethoven's most successful pieces when he was alive is Wellington's Victory, and nobody likes that piece very much. And something I think about is that when we learn about music, I don't think we're very well equipped to deal with what is happening right now. Mm. Because all of the music we learn about has gone through generations and generations of calling through a bunch of different composers who were active in the same time as Beethoven, who we don't even know about or talk about, all of Beethoven's music, and then through history and study, these pieces of Beethoven are considered the good pieces. So we get to benefit in our education from this long generational editing process for all of the music that was composed in the early 19th century. And because of that, because we don't recognize that that's what we learn when we're dealing with the present day and there are thousands of composers writing thousands of different pieces it's like well how do we know what's good well nobody like how did people in 1815 vienna know what's good like they didn't but we get the benefit of looking back at that time in a very clear way because of the way history is written and we're not very well equipped to deal with now and so yeah i think that's true i mean people depend on what people say is good too much And I think Mm -hmm. that's becoming more necessary for people to express opinions. Uh, Everyone needs to read a review of a movie before going to see it. Um, Mm -hmm. What you say about that it's a construct, it makes me think about what guest composer Xi'an called musical imperialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He has kind of obsessed with writing about how Japanese musical culture is a Western musical culture. Like they learn about Mm -hmm. things, they learn about things that are sort of not their own natural musical culture. Mm -hmm. It's important to think about that. It's, It's upsetting because, you know, if the standard for what great music is, is Beethoven, then that's excluding a lot of different people who aren't even aware of Beethoven or trying to do what Beethoven is doing. Like, it's not a one competition of, like, every composer trying to top Beethoven. There are traditions where the value sets are completely different. In my theory class today, we were talking about um, indeterminacy and, like, graphic Mm -hmm. score pieces, and we had a really good discussion or a very revealing discussion to my students who were just like, well, there's no notation, like, how is this a piece? And I was like, well, you know... (laughs) What defines a piece? Like, the piece is not, like... A score of a Beethoven string quartet is not the Beethoven string quartet. It's a representation of the Beethoven string quartet right, yeah. that then can be interpreted to be that piece. And by the way, I've never talked so much about Beethoven. <laughs> That's so strange. Um, and so, like, there are other cultures with like completely different values that are basically incomparable to the things that in the West we put a lot of the stakes into of right. like what is good. And we don't culturally in America, we don't do a good job of like reconciling difference right. without it being really deeply seated in value judgments. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's hard for us to accept that 
I don't know very much about Japanese music, so I'm I'm going to be very general. But like Japanese music is doing something,、mm-hmm. and it's very different from what Western composers are doing.、Mm-hmm. And in the West, we tend to interpret that something else as being worse, right? When that that doesn't even have anything to do with it. It's just something else. Exactly. To kind of go off of that, and to sort of ask you a zeitgeisty question: Where do you see the trends going in music? Like say、oh. the next generation of musicians and composers. Um, fortunately for me, I was talking to somebody about this today,、oh. so I'm, I'm I'm very prepared. Well, I think that what is happening a lot, and a lot of this has to do with where I live、mm-hmm. in Michigan, which is not a not really considered a cultural hotbed, at least in terms of the whole state. Detroit gets a lot of attention、mm-hmm. for arts, but it's not contemporary music for sure. If it if、DSO. if there's any certain Yeah, the DSO is wonderful, and then in terms of like art of the place in Detroit, it's like public visual art that converts blighted houses into th- pieces of art and that sort of thing, and that that's wonderful, and it doesn't have anything to do with music. But I think a lot of composers, I guess the composers who I get inspired by, and try to model myself after, are people who are writing pieces that are very personal. I think、mm-hmm. what. Composers can do to serve our contemporary society is try to be an example of like how to create meaning out of everyday experiences. And parallel to that is like finding ways to bring contemporary music to people in a very direct way, in a very unpretentious way.、Yes. Sort of, sort of like instead of making people make the leap. Sort of, and by people I mean non musicians who we want to care about contemporary music. Instead of waiting for them to make the leap of like, oh, this music is interesting, like put it in front of them. Yeah. Um. And and I think place is very important. And so like a lot of my work in that regard, like with Apex, is like trying to bring musical programming that's not happening anywhere else in Michigan to places in Michigan, and really emphasize like this is a very cool place to live. It's a very Um, supportive place to live for a lot of different things. Why can't contemporary music be one of those things? And connecting it to place, like being like this is happening in Michigan, and we're making special things happen in Michigan,、um, opens up people to what we're programming without them even caring about what it is.、Yeah. It's almost liberating in a way that our programming doesn't matter. Even students at UM or at a university wouldn't. Be excited to hear Pierre Boulez, and like nobody in in like around Ann Arbor or wherever we're performing because we performed in other places in Michigan、mm-hmm. are going to see Pierre Boulez's name on on a poster and be like, "Ooh, I gotta go to that concert." But we want to program him, and we think his music is great. But if we if people know what we're doing because it's like, "Oh, this is really interesting, different music that's happening in Michigan for Michigan," that sort of thing. It doesn't matter what we program as long as we believe in it. Yeah, that's smart because you're tying it to a place. So there's your、mm-hmm. connection point right there. Well, and I th- I think that's how a lot of common practice period composers. Worked. They、yeah. lived in a very like locally oriented time because they couldn't connect to other parts of Europe or wherever they were. Not everyone could walk and... 250 miles to hear their favorite organist. So. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And like, I was I was thinking about this like, I really hate Wagner for a lot of I think legitimate reasons. You know, that's a common theme with all of our our guests is that we don't. Like yeah,、Wagner. good. Oh man!、Know. I mean, why is obvious, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, unrepenting anti-Semitism 
tends to do that to people. But, you know, he was writing about place. He was inspired by this particular part of German geography and the Rhine and and all these things that it meant to him. But, But we tend to disassociate that with the music we disassociate a lot of things from Wagner's music um, when it's performed, mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's important to like strengthen whatever can be of like a contemporary tradition for composed music in America is like connect it with place and yeah um, that's a good point because it also makes us see culturally how different things represent different places and the strength of that mm-hmm. helps I think us accept different things mm-hmm. it makes it appealing to more people like. You could ostensibly have a composer in every state who's really dedicated to writing music about characteristics of that state. Like people in Wyoming like have a composer for them, and people in Texas have composers for them. There's nothing that's stopping that from happening except, well, composers are hard to organize. And then also orientation around, like, instead of trying to compete with this constructed tradition that comes from Europe anyway um, (laughs) like trying to make something that's more connected to where we are in the present so Um, basically you're saying in about 10 years we'll have a classical music Sufjan Stevens maybe I mean he he collaborates with Nico Muley so he's not that far away from um, living composers that's true that's another thing that I see more of do you see that infiltration happening more and more because of the sort of fear that there's no classical music audience? I think there are a lot of reasons behind that. I mean, I know, like, the Grand Valley State New Music Ensemble mm-hmm. actually commissioned Jad Abumrad. Right, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, because he has a degree from Oberlin. I didn't know that. Um, oh, I didn't know that either. I mean, huh. yeah, he got an undergraduate composition degree from Oberlin, um. so... Um, you know, I think it's a complicated question because... Yeah. On one hand, I think that there are actually a lot of aesthetic overlaps in a very, like, empirical sense between people who identify themselves as composers and then, like, alt or indie rock. I think there's a lot of actual material overlap between those genres. I think that there might be a sort of marketing thing, or when I see that the Nashville Symphony has commissioned a piano concerto from Ben Folds, it's like, well, it's great that they're being very open-minded about things, but um, it it seems a little bit like a short-term thing to try and get some attention. So, if you were to do a sort of outside-the-box collaboration, who would be your top picks to work with? Well, I think... um, I I hope this counts as outside-the-box. I think something that would be a dream of mine Mm -hmm. would be... So I love heavy metal music, and that's how I started creating music was I played electric guitar in a band, and I only wanted to play heavy metal songs, and then they kicked me out. What? Um, They kicked you out? But that's like... Yeah, they didn't want to play heavy metal songs, but oh. um, we had a we had a good run. But I would love to do like there have been a couple times. Metallica did this with the San Francisco Symphony, and I don't particularly like Metallica very much. I think they're quite overrated. Ooh. But um, um, at me, <laughs> at me, come on, I will defend that take forever. But uh, they did a collaboration with the San Francisco Symphony, where the director of the orchestra at that time, the music director Michael Kamen, who was a mm-hmm. composer as well. Um, and he unfortunately died very young. He wrote some a lot of interesting music, but uh, he did all these orchestrations to go along with their mm-hmm. songs. So I would love to do that with either 
Slayer, which is my absolute favorite metal band, or Meshuggah, which is this right. Swedish metal band who whom I love very much, and they get a lot of um, attention in like the music theory circles and new music circles, like Derek Johnson, the yeah. guitarist for the Bang on the Can All Stars, is a huge Meshuggah fan and like knows them very well. If you say Meshuggah, are you kicked off? No, 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 no. It's just Meshuggah. Um, but like, it would be a dream come true. Like, if they did a concert with an orchestra and they needed somebody to like create orchestral music around their mm-hmm. music, like, oh my god. Nothing in my life could possibly make me happier than that. Really? Well, on a smaller scale, if a performer kind of asks... Because, I mean, you're caught in this weird place, right? Like, you have great ideas and you have a lot of creativity, but then you also have to make a living, right? So (laughs) you can have all these opinions about weird collaborations and all that's kind of superficial or that's kind of transparent. But when push comes to shove, if somebody commissions you to write something that you may not be entirely on board with, would you say no? Well... I guess it depends on what the context for the commission is. Um, Like, if it's to write new songs to celebrate the Confederate States of America, I think I'll, like, say no to that. You'll definitely do a hard no. But I'm not, you know, I I did a film score last year, which I never thought I would. Yeah, it was for a short film, and I never thought I would do anything like that, and it was a really cool experience, and... um, What is it for? What film? It was made by this uh, guy in New York named Cosmo Carlson, who I think had just graduated from NYU. It was a film about a Pinewood Derby competition. Basically, this kid is tempted into cheating to win the Pinewood Derby, but then decides not to. Sorry, Cosmo, I just spoiled your movie. It's a modern take on the uh, devil coming to Yeah, exactly. And so I, I did the score for that, and it was a cool opportunity. And I'm basically open to do, you know, anything that I think is is interesting and worthwhile and that I think I'm capable of doing. Like, uh, there's certain... I'm not, like, super fluent with a lot of electronics Mm -hmm. and stuff. I've done a lot of fixed media music, but in terms of, like, live electronics, I've only ever done things with, like, distortion pedals and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So as long as I think it suits my skill set and is an interesting project, I'd be willing to do that. So um, I'm quite available (laughs) to everyone who's listening to this podcast. Uh, What's your tweety things? uh, My my Twitter handle is is G-A-R-R-T, and you can find me there, and we can work out the details of anything. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm going to correct you, because I don't think it's entirely accurate for you to say if it's within your skill set because i've seen you actually develop skills for a commission like you know like you're you're pretty flexible (laughs) thank you i mean but if i really think like if it was something with live electronics i don't think i could figure out how to do it but basically anything else i think i could thank you for expressing that kind of faith (laughs) in me um but yeah i think i i'd be willing to you know try anything you know as long as everyone is like understands that maybe it would be my first time doing it like for this this last piece that i had um premiered um it's it this marimba duo about my niece used aleatory in like a more extensive way than i'd ever done before i was really pleased with the piece and the performers christopher fro and mayumi hama who are like two of the best percussionists in the world um they really liked the piece but the next time I do a piece that has aleatory, like, it'll be better right. because I've done it before. And so everyone, like, kind of understood that 
it was an experiment in a way, but the, the next time I decide to do that, it won't be an experiment because I've got that piece under my belt. So. Yeah. What's coming up for you? What premieres are coming up? What are you working on? Well, um, I just had this piece premiered at the beginning of November um, in Sacramento at the Festival for New American Music, this piece for my niece. And it's kind of the... I don't have a ton of stuff coming up, so Chris Fro and I have been talking about doing... We're both on board for doing a percussion chamber concerto, um, which the time... It's very tentative. Like, I I don't know when it'll happen, but we just talked today about it, and, and we're both really excited about doing it. The premiere will probably be in Ann Arbor, like, through Ooh. Apex and maybe the University of Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm working on a piece for this pianist named Nicholas Phillips. Oh, wait, you know Nick. He was the pianist in San yeah, Francisco. At, uh, the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he asked a bunch of composers to write piano miniatures for him in response to the president. Oh, wow. And I don't, like, I don't really try to do, like, overtly political pieces, but I, I like Nick a lot, and I, th- I thought it would be cool to try to do something. Yeah. So um, I, I have to finish that, like, by January and but it doesn't have to be very long and i enjoy writing piano music even though i'm not a very good piano so i'm excited to do that and then i'm i've been talking to a couple saxophonists about doing a saxophone duo Mm -hmm. so um because i wrote a piece about my niece noah um noah that the marimba duo yes it's a israeli name for girls um noa oh that's beautiful it's actually a really good name for a piece because it looks cool. Yeah. And so people will be like, oh, weird. Yeah, they'll think it's like some um, avant-garde Chinese piece with no... Oh, yeah. And then it's... No, it's about a baby. <laughs> um, but my twin is about to have a kid, too. Oh. So I have to... I've established the precedent that I will write pieces about nieces and nephews when they're born. It's a christening gift, basically. Yeah, basically. And, like, Shayna is doing a baby blanket, knitting a baby blanket. So my version of a baby blanket is a piece of music. So I'm probably going to turn the saxophone duo for these two saxophonists I've, I've met. One is in New York. Her name is Shelley Washington. Oh, they're also both composers. So Shelley is a great uh-huh. composer um, who lives in Brooklyn. And then Alan Tyson is a saxophonist and composer who lives in North Carolina. And oh, uh, cool. 
that we were I was on I was being um I was being a little desperate on Twitter because after I wrote this um marimba duo like I have the piano miniature but then I don't really have anything to do for I ostensibly forever it could be the end no. of my career I don't know but but and so I was on Twitter and I was like you know I'm dreaming up of like pieces that would be fun to do what if like it would be cool to do a, a saxophone duo for Alan and Shelley and I mentioned them and then and then they were like oh this sounds like fun and so then many direct messages later it looks like that I'll actually be doing it so Twitter is good boys and girls and everyone who is listening you can use it to get yeah. commissions and like advice um, one from Garrett. That'll be probably the yeah because my twin played saxophone when we were growing up. I'll probably have that saxophone oh. duo be the piece about his kid, right. and so I'll, I'll I will satisfy the precedent that I've established. And then I was you know I was talking before about maybe writing a piece about my grandmother. I haven't decided if I'll do that, but if you um, do do that, send me the music because that sounds like oh a, yeah absolutely yeah lovely. I I I will it, it will be thank you. It'll be very different from escapement because it'll be a, a lot more subdued but um i think you know i'll be writing this mi- miniature for nick and so i might just have piano music on the brain and so it, it might just happen honestly the audience that i program for nowadays they love the meaning they love that personal connection i think it really helps because we always talk about the music anyways we always give the story well and i think that it would in terms of aesthetics like it would probably use quotation and that sort of thing of that mozart piece mm-hmm. of the mampo which is like it's really beautiful music mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be like you know post partitions by milton babbitt so maybe your audience would enjoy it more i, I will know. say this is that people think they don't like new music a lot more than is truth i that is absolutely true and i mean yeah. i guess like this is something that you may or may not agree with but like uh, matt brown wrote me a piece called listomania and so I programmed a bunch of lists, and then I played his piece after that. Um, and he, at first, was a little wary of that, just because it's like, oh, here's all this great list stuff that like people love, and then there's my piece. But actually, it, it really worked. People really liked it, and they laughed mm-hmm. a lot, and it was it was kind of a hit. I would say that that was really smart programming, because you warmed them up to it. Like They heard a ton of what they wanted to hear, so they'd be open to hearing something new. Yeah. And that kind of format works really well. Yeah, what's well, kind of the format that we have to go by? Like you just mm-hmm. people come for the Brahms, but you give them a taste of something that they actually might love more, mm-hmm. and they're not expecting it. But you know, it's only ten or fifteen minutes, so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love not to have tricks, mm-hmm. but it's what it is. I mean, I've always been met with a positive reaction, you know. So. Well, well, I th- I think what what you're doing with that is like you're establishing. Especially like if you're on a on a tour or something with an audience that doesn't already know you, like yeah. you establish trust with them. Like you know, I can give you the classics that you like. Why don't you go with me on this tangent for a moment and listen to something that is a little bit different, but I think works really well. And it's all about creating the circumstances to persuade them to go along with you. And so, absolutely, if that's the pattern that works, then go with it. Well, I mean, a lot of pianists. They have this weird kind of attitude about new music, like as if, oh, you're a new music pianist. Oh, you can't really play your Beethoven, can you? Mm-hmm. You kind of need to classify yourself as better. But I think what this also does is people can't say, oh, you can't play like the great classics. Yeah, we can play them. And then we can play other stuff, too, just with as much work into it and as much serious intent. A very similar thing happens with composers, though, because if you if there if composers 
and maybe it's a little bit less universalized because nowadays there really isn't just like one tradition that you're trying to go at but like based on where you are like in my undergrad all of the grad students were writing really intense modernist music at least for like the first two years of my undergrad Uh and it's like if you weren't doing that then you weren't as good it's just like what we were saying about japanese music and that sort of thing and then it's like well with pianists it's like well if you're not playing the classics then you must not be good right yeah because we can't measure you by the same standards so well and when i came to michigan like the composers who were with me in michigan were writing like more um neo tonal neo romantic pieces and i wasn't writing music like that and so it was like well if you're not writing neo-tonal neo-romantic pieces then you must be terrible right because only bad composers write atonal music and it's like i went from my music didn't really change that much but in one place it was like too too conservative and traditional sounding and then the exact same pieces became too avant-garde in like a different location and it's it's very it was a very strange experience it just kind of taught me to like pay attention to what i care about and not what the people around me care about so truth well i just wanted to ask where people can find yeah so um i have a website garrettschumann.com um g-a-r-r-e-t-t-s-c-h-u-m-a-n-n yes just like the other schumann composers excepting william schumann who uses one n you can find recordings of my music there i'm also on soundcloud if you just search my name you'll find me on soundcloud you can find recordings there um, my concert presenting organization, Apex Contemporary Performance, we are a 501c3. If you could make a tax-deductible contribution to us, our website is apexcontemporary.org. That's spelled A-E-P-E-X contemporary.org. And mm-hmm. Jeanette, you you were a soloist with us in our first season. That was an amazing concert that you did a wonderful job on, on, on probably the worst piano I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. It came complete with a box cutter inside, so yeah. that's all I'll say. No offense to the venue, which will go unnamed at this time, um, but that piano was terrible. But you did an amazing job in un, um, ideal circumstances. And then I'm also, I'm very active on Twitter, so you can find me on Twitter at Gart, G-A-R-R-T. It was an old, weird nickname from college, but it's great because it's only five characters long. And it's one syllable. And it's one syllable, and uh, you can learn all about the weird things that i'm into from there because i tweet about everything i do tweet about sports and the bachelor but also a lot of new music things so just be ready for a lot of different stuff i I think that's a great combination um sports Mm -hmm. and the bachelor yeah why not i don't i've never talked so much about beethoven as i've have in the last hour and a half or however long we've been talking so it must be me again yeah yeah we had a rocky start to this recording (laughs) (laughs) our minds are a little in a different place but anyways thanks garrett and let's catch up soon again absolutely thank you so much for having me oh thank you and uh i i love the podcast give my best to francis because you and he were in classes with me in my doctorate so we all we have that in common oh we didn't get to talk about that we'll have to have you back again. yeah i would love to come back well that just about does it for today i hope you enjoyed the interview thank you for tuning in and choosing our podcast to listen to it really means a lot to us and i hope you continue and tune in next week for another interesting interview and check us out on itunes and leave us a review if you want to we always appreciate any feedback and check us out on the various social media outlets we have we are on twitter we are on Instagram, so many wrong notes. 
We also have our cool new website, so many wrong notes.com. 